We just read most of Acts chapter 15. And one commentary I read about it says that this is the most crucial chapter in the whole of the book of Acts. That's a pretty big call, I reckon. I mean, back in Acts chapter 2 is when the Holy Spirit's given to the church. You'd reckon that'd be pretty crucial, wouldn't you? But he's saying that this one's even more crucial. Now, does anyone feel that maybe they might have missed something? Because I know some, like I've read through the Bible a number of times. I know that often I've read through this passage and I've just read straight through it. And it hardly batted an eyelid. I've hardly given it any more thought. And um, yet here he's saying that this is the most crucial chapter. I mean, isn't it just a disagreement over circumcision and stuff? And how's that relevant to us? Why do we need to worry about it? Well, if you missed it, this is one of the first and probably the most important debates that the Christian church has ever had. And it was, to put it a nice way, a passionate debate. Uh, probably a more truthful way of putting it, it was, it was a heated debate. It, it, was, it was a fiery debate. They were into it. The issue? Gentiles are becoming Christians. Yahoo! Uh, but to become a Christian, do they also have to be, become a Jew? Hmm. Do, do you have to eat the right things? Do you have to follow the Jewish religious practices? Uh, do you have to be circumcised? Uh, do they have to keep the Mosaic law? In chapter 10, God shows Peter that God is bringing the Gentiles into his family. And then we sort of see that unfolding. And then by the time we get to chapter 14, the door is being opened even wider to not just the Gentiles who are on the fringes of the Jewish synagogues, but to all the Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus. And now, in chapter 15, there are those who want to slam that door right back shut again. And to say to the Gentiles, yeah, you can become Christians, all right, but you've got to become just like us. And thus, we have the grace versus law debate. And it was a debate that was settled in Jerusalem in this chapter 15 of Acts. Unfortunately, the grace versus law debate has now moved on from its original issue and it's become a debate over something else which still rages today. And we're not going to get time to cover that today, but I actually think it's important that we do cover it sometime in the near future. You know, as we read chapter 15, we probably fail to see the importance of it because for many of us it's a non-issue. It's a non-issue because the battle's been fought. The battle has been won. And there is the importance of chapter 15. The church has been able to move on. And if this debate had not been had, Christianity would be little more than just a branch off of a Jewish sect today. But because the debate was had, and because the decision was made, Christianity today is not a Jewish sect. It's a new thing that God has done and it's something which is doing right across the globe, something that you and I are invited into. Because this debate was had a couple of thousand years ago, a bunch of disciples of Jesus Christ can meet this very morning in a little hall in a place called St George. So today we're going to have a little bit of a look at what this debate was about, how they handled the debate and the decisions that were reached. Christianity had at its very roots the Jewish faith. Jesus 
I was going to say was a Jew, but he is a Jew, okay? Jesus is a Jew. And Jesus said, you've got to take the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. We must never forget that the Jews are God's chosen people and, and the Jews have, had been entrusted with God's law. And so you can probably understand that, that when these Gentiles, these non-Jews, started to fill the church, the Jews really didn't know what to do with them because they had had it drummed into them ever since they were little children on their parents' knee that to be right with God you have to be circumcised and you have to keep all of God's law and they'd been told, don't you mix with those little, Jew- those little Gentile kids down the road because they're unclean. They're not circumcised. They don't keep God's law. You, you can't mix with those little kids. And so you can understand their dilemma between what they'd been taught through all of their upbringing and through all of their religious experience and what they are now seeing happening. What do we do with these Gentiles? And you can probably understand how their upbringing and their traditions were influencing what what they were now expecting of the Gentiles. Because sometimes we get stuck in our traditions, don't we? I know sometimes I sort of think, well, the first thing he needs is a jolly good haircut. Well, actually, I don't think God cares about somebody's haircut. You know what I mean? We get, our traditions and our expectations are sometimes what we get caught up in. You know what? Jesus talked about how you don't put new wine into an old wineskin. And if you do, the wineskin will burst and it'll just spill, out, spill the wine out onto the ground and it'll be spoiled. And that's what these Judaizers were attempting to do. Judaizers is what what we call these people, people who are trying to say to these Gentile Christians, you've got to become a Jew. Okay? God was doing a new thing by opening up the door to the Gentiles, but some of the Jews were trying to push this new work of God back into the old religious system, and the old religious system could not contain it. And and it was something that was just going to make it burst and the whole thing was just going to be spoiled. And so we read from verse 1, but some men came down from Judea. Right, Judea, that's full on Jewish territory. By the way, this also should be telling you something. Australia, the globe is actually upside down. Australia should be up on top because Judea is actually south of Antioch where they went and they came up. So that's a by the way thing. Um, But... They were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Circumcision was a covenant that God had made with Abraham way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 17. Cutting off the foreskin was a sign that you were a part of God's covenant. You were one of God's people. And these agitators that these Judaizers from Judea were saying, unless you do this, you can't be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had it out with them. They had a heated debate. And it wasn't resolved, and so the church in Antioch thought, right, we've got to get this sorted. So they send Paul and Barnabas and a few others off to Jerusalem to take the question up with the apostles and the elders. So at this stage, Jerusalem is still where most of the apostles could be found. And they were the ones who had the authority to make this kind of decision. 
These were the ones who knew Jesus best. These are the ones who had travelled with Jesus throughout his ministry. They are the ones who had heard Jesus' teaching. So they sent them to them to sort it out. And on their way, they caught up with each of the churches as they passed through on the way because they couldn't keep quiet about the amazing work that God's been doing. I hope, by the way, when you guys go, go away, when, you, when you're not in town for a Sunday, I hope you go and fellowship with another church somewhere. Do you? I hope you do. You know, I, I, I know one time, oh, actually a number of ministers I know, they say, oh, when we go on holidays, that's our holiday. We don't go anywhere near a church. I go, oh, I can't wait to get away to another church. I just love to mix with other Christians. And, and, and that's what these guys did on their way. And they just couldn't keep quiet about it. They're telling God about, they, it says they actually told them in detail about the conversion that, that was happening amongst the Gentiles. And it brought great joy to all of the brothers. But you know, when they got to Jerusalem, and not everybody shared in that joy. It was very clear that there was a great big division in the Jerusalem church on this issue. And the particular divide came from the Pharisees. What's a Pharisee? We don't hear about the Pharisees much unless we're reading the Gospels. Uh, The Pharisees, you may remember that Paul himself used to be a Pharisee. But a Pharisee, they were the ones who called themselves the holy ones. That's what Pharisee means. And you may remember throughout the Gospels, Jesus always seems to be continually having arguments with the Pharisees over and over and over again about their external show of purity, but they're all messed up inside. They were unholy inside. But the Pharisees were really intent on this purity thing. And here we have a group of Pharisees who had become Christians. So presumably their hearts were now right with God, but they continued to cling to the old wineskin. They continued to cling to all of the religious requirements and the cleanliness laws that their tradition had built up around God's law. And they said to them, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And there was much debate that was had. Um, reading between the lines, the way it's described, it just sounds like a free-for-all. Everybody talking over the top of everybody and, and, and arguing about it. And they couldn't agree. Now, now, what's going on? I mean, where's the unity in the church? Aren't we churches supposed to be places of peace? And You know, for most of us, the very thought of getting involved in a theological argument over matters of faith is something that we'd run a mile from to avoid. You know, we'd avoid it like the plague. But you know what? It's also something that's absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary to get to the truth to uphold the truth, to articulate the truth. When false teachings arise, they need to be dealt with. If they just swept this issue under the carpet all those years ago, what would it look like under that carpet now? It would be like a giant mountain if they just kept sweeping it under the carpet. And the issue still wouldn't be resolved. And the church would still be worrying over this issue. Are we supposed to be Jews or are we not? And there's big issues that's confronting the Christian church today that the Christian church are grappling with. And these issues are issues 
which must be debated. Most of them shouldn't actually take much time. But they must be debated so that the error can be exposed for what it is, so it can be thrown out on its ear and the truth upheld and articulated. Um, A matter for you to keep in your prayers. In one week today, the Uniting Church Assembly meet. They, They meet once every three years. And so in one week today they begin to meet and and on the agenda is for them to continue the discussion on whether it's okay for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman. Um, Now these are real issues um, that need to be dealt with and exposed and thrown out. And so I I just ask that you would pray. Pray for the, the people who are going to be at that meeting, pray for the leaders of that church that they'd be able to say enough is enough, that they would understand that lawlessness is from the devil and that the direction that they've been heading comes from the father of lies. Now, and you need to pray for strength for people at those meetings. I can tell you from experience, a lot of years of experience, it's a tough call to stand up in a room filled with those who will not listen to the truth and continue to speak the truth. As soon as you stand up, you hear people start to snicker about you and go, oh, him again. I know what he's going to say. He's going to talk about how this is not in the Bible. It's tough and it takes a toll. And I hope you thank God for the godly men and women who won't shy away from arguing the truth in the midst of a theological argument. Because that's what happened here in this Jerusalem council that we're talking about today. After much debate, Peter stood up and he talked about the call of God that he had received. You remember, I think it's probably a couple of months ago now, we we, we read how Peter was sent to Cornelius and he was told to take the gospel to these Gentiles. So he talked about the direct revelation from God. He talked about his call. He talked about his experience. So God had said, you go to the Gentiles. Don't call them unclean. And then when he obeyed God and he did this, the Gentiles turned to Jesus and they received the Holy Spirit. That was his experience. And then Peter appealed to reason and he said to them, look, if God has accepted them as they are, why? Why would we want to put an added burden on them that we haven't been able to carry? Basically, what he is saying is we believe that we're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We couldn't keep the law. We had the law, but we couldn't keep it. We were incapable and and therefore we need the grace of God. And so do they. There's no difference. We Jews need the grace of God and, and so do these Gentiles. And everybody stopped arguing. And there was silence. Have you ever been in a meeting where you just can't come to agreement and there's just argument side to side and, and, and nobody can... It's like you're at an impasse. But then somebody speaks an inspired word of wisdom and everyone just stops. And it's silent. And maybe a few people around the room might just start silently nodding their heads as as the wisdom of what was said just begins to soak in. If you've ever seen that happen, you've probably seen the spiritual gift of wisdom. 
Some people have that spiritual gift of wisdom and they just speak and just cuts everything out. And then Paul and Barnabas shared their experience of all that God had miraculously done through their ministry with the Gentiles. And then the statesman of the apostles, James, takes them beyond reason. He takes them beyond experience and he takes them to the scriptures. You see, Peter's direct revelation from God, even though it was from Peter, right? I mean, he's a pretty important guy. But even though it was Peter's experience, it had to be tested. Because it may have been a revelation of God or maybe he could have been getting deceived by the devil. You've got to remember, Peter wasn't above this. Do you remember Jesus one day turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. What you're saying, these are not the words of God. And a supposed direct revelation from God means very little unless it's confirmed with the Scriptures. Peter's reasoning could have been all very sound, but it might have been wrong. It could have been empty. It would have been empty if it was contrary to what the Scriptures said. Peter's experience and Paul and Barnabas' experience of the miracles of God that God had been doing and of these experiences of the Holy Spirit would have had to have been considered suspect if they didn't line up with the Scriptures. But they did. They did line up with the Scriptures. And so James speaks up and he says, the Scriptures agree with what we've just been told. And he quotes from the prophets Amos and Jeremiah about how the Gentiles would turn to God and become God's people. And so in making this decision, they considered God's call. They considered revelation from God. They considered the experiences that they'd had and they considered Peter's reasoning. But the real test was, what do the scriptures say? And it's the same for us. When we're trying to determine God's direction or if we're trying to determine, well, what's right and what's wrong in this situation, or if we're trying to determine, well, well, what is true, what is good theology, what is bad theology, what is truth, what is lies, yes, we can think about God's call. Yes, we can think about you know, how we've felt when God's been praying to us. Oh, sorry, God doesn't pray to us. When we've been praying to God, um, yes, we can consider the experiences that we've had. Yes, we can consider reason. But the real test is, what do the scriptures say? Does this line up with what the scriptures say? So James said, the scriptures agree with these. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. All good. All settled. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law. Excellent. But then he seems to backpedal he says but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality from what has been strangled and from blood now what's going on here they've just said right you're free from all the law it's all grace you're free from all the law you don't have to keep that but now make sure you don't do these things what's going on There's three important principles at play here. In God's grace, in Jesus Christ, we are free from the law. But we're not free to do whatever we like. We find three principles for how we 
should exercise freedom. The first principle is an issue of repentance. These Gentiles used to be idolaters. They would sacrifice, idols, you know, sacrifice animals to idols, to, to other gods. And then they would eat the meat that had been dedicated to them and that was all part of their worship to these gods. But they've been called away from this. They've been called to leave the idols behind, leave those things behind and start following Jesus. And repentance is not just a change of mind. Um, I'm, I'm going to say this really clearly. Repentance is not just a change of mind because it's something I've been hearing a lot lately. There's a new teaching which has come into town which is saying repentance is just a change of mind. You don't have to change your behaviour. That's not true biblically. Biblically, it is a change of mind but it is also a change of behaviour. And so for them to repent meant that they had to leave behind what they used to do. And what did they used to do? They used to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And they had to stop doing that. And the principle is the same for us. When, when you become a Christian, there are certain things that you need to repent of. You change your mind about Jesus and there's certain things that because Jesus is Lord... And, and he is, we have to be obedient to him. He says, you shouldn't do these things. So maybe you might have used to have been filled with anger and you've had to turn from that anger and put that anger aside and say, I can't be angry anymore. Or maybe you used to be filled with greed. I, I, I can't, my life cannot be characterised with, with always wanting to get more. I need to start to be generous and give. And you might have had to repent of that greed. You might have used to have steal stuff. Oh no, no, none of us are ever thieves, but oh, I've never had to buy a pen because oh, I just leave one in my pocket at the end of the day when I leave from work and it, it, I've got plenty of pens at home. I oh, guess who they are? They're your bosses. You've stolen them. I know that's something I've needed to repent of. By the way, Robin, we've got a teaspoon in our drawer with QH stamped on it. Maybe you used to dishonour your parents. That's something you had to repent of. You can't go back to those things. And so the first principle is repentance. A change of mind and a change of behaviour. A change of who we are now that we're in Christ. It's an issue of the lordship of Christ. If Jesus Christ is Lord, if he is my Lord, then I must obey him. And he has called me to repent. The second principle is an issue of holiness. He said that they should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, does that mean it's okay for them to lie, steal, cheat and kill? Of course not. Sexual immorality is, is being used here as an example of a moral choice that is made. It's a type of choice representing the moral law. You see, Christian Gentiles would be distinct from other Gentiles. Sexual immorality was rife in the Gentile culture, just as it is in ours today. But disciples of Jesus Christ 
belong to a different culture. I hope you understand that. You don't belong to the Aussie culture. You belong to the culture of Christ. And what's acceptable in the world is not acceptable in the kingdom of God. And what we have to understand is in Judaism there was the religious law and there was the moral law and the two of them went together. One, the moral law was about right and wrong, moral and immoral, things that please God and things that make God angry. It was about the condition of our heart. And the other, the religious law was about, well, actually, we haven't been able to keep all of the moral law, so we're actually unholy. How can we, an unholy, sinful people, have a relationship with a holy God? And so there was a whole system of rules and regulations and religious practices and traditions and and temple sacrifice and shedding of blood to atone for sin so that it could enable them to worship God. But for us, Christ is the fulfilment of the law. Jesus is that atonement. Jesus is that purification. The blood of Jesus makes us pure and holy for God. But that doesn't mean it's okay for us to go on sinning. The religious law is finished. It's fulfilled in Jesus. But the moral law continues in Jesus. I read an article during the week and in it Tim Keller is talking about how Christians get accused of ignoring some parts of the Bible and insisting on others and and how people accuse them of being inconsistent. Um, And so, for example, uh, the Old Testament might say, uh, I'm just looking at you, John, and you've got got a coat there made out of two different types of material, blue and green, and that's, you know, that's, that's just not on. And, and the zipper looks like it's made out of nylon. You know, you, you can't have two different... Now, this is all... And they sort of say, you don't worry about those Old Testament laws anymore, but you worry about these others. And Tim Keller says, the New Testament gives us further guidance about how to read the Old Testament. Paul makes it clear in places like Romans 13 that the apostles understood the Old Testament moral law to still be binding on us. In short, the coming of Christ changed how we worship, but not how we live. The moral law outlines God's own character. Have you ever considered that? The moral law outlines God's own character. His integrity, his love, his faithfulness. So everything the Old Testament says about loving our neighbour, caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, uh, social relationships and commitment to our family is still in force. He says the New Testament continues to forbid killing or committing adultery and all the sex ethic of the Old Testament is restated throughout the New Testament. If the New Testament has reaffirmed a commandment, then it is still in force for us today. You see, it's all to do with the Lordship of Christ. Because Jesus is our Lord, we yield to him as our Lord. And we say, I will endeavour with your help, Lord, to obey you. So the second principle is holiness. The third principle is an issue of love for our Christian brother and sister. 
He said, don't eat meat that's been strangled and don't eat blood. Now, that actually was one of the religious laws. Back in, it's not a moral law, it's a religious law. What, and they said, but you're free from the religious law. Now, now what, what's he doing here? Why are they to keep that particular law? If they're free from these laws, why keep doing it? The reason is love. Love for our Christian brother or sister. James explained it in verse 21. He says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. Right? So he's saying this is no new thing. Right throughout the known world, people have been hearing this. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Gentile Christians would be meeting and worshipping together with Jewish Christians. And a very important part of their fellowship was getting together to have a, and sharing a meal together. We do that sometimes, don't we? Does anybody here enjoy that? Getting together as a church family and sharing a meal together and, and inviting one another over to each other's places to, to have company and, and just continue fellowship together over a meal. It's wonderful. I love it. I have a friend who used to have a saying, it's as funny as a pork chop in a synagogue. Which of course means it's not very funny at all. In fact, that's just downright offensive. Now, for the Jewish Christians, their culture was don't eat blood. And if they sat down together as a, for a meal at church and strangled meat was served up to them with a side dish of blood pudding, they'd probably vomit all over your, all over your dining room table. I, I probably would too, by the way. Um, and so the principle at play here is don't exercise your freedom if you're going to hurt your Christian brother. It's the same principle that we're going to see in the very next chapter. What's this whole chapter argument been about? Circumcision. Right? Paul is going out all guns blazing. People don't have to be circumcised. Yep. And he's finally won the debate in, at, by the end of chapter 15. You know what happens in chapter 16? Paul circumcises Timothy. Because of love. Paul and Timothy are just about to go out on a mission to the Jews and they didn't want to offend the Jews. And so he was free to not be circumcised. But he is also free to be circumcised out of love for those that they're about to go on mission to. And so the third principle as we exercise our freedom is love, love for our brother. Let me give you an example. Are Christians free to drink alcohol? Some say yes, some say no. Well, I actually think biblically, the Bible says we are free to drink alcohol, but not to get drunk. Drunkenness is a sin. But, If there is a reformed alcoholic in 
in our midst. None of us should drink. Out of love for our brother, we shouldn't have any alcohol anywhere near him because that is something that could make him fall. Also, there may be those who, because of their upbringing or because of the culture that they live in or because of their beliefs, are offended when people drink alcohol. Well, for their sake, rather than cause offence, we are free not to drink alcohol. Do you see the principle? And you can apply that to all sorts of things in life. Yes, we are free that we can do them. But it may not be beneficial. It may not be beneficial for us. It may not be beneficial for others. And so out of love for the other, we determine not to do it. And I think the um, church at Antioch understood this because they rejoiced when they got their letter which told them all this. So here we are. We're free from the law. Is anyone happy about that? I am. I'm happy I'm free from the law. We're saved by grace. Is anybody happy about that? Yep. Me too. But we're not free to do whatever we like. We should always consider issues of repentance, holiness and love for our brother.